Well, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I'd like to wish you a happy Easter Sunday as we have gathered once again to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, but specifically thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on this day, as many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world are doing. I encourage you to open your Bibles or look in the worship order where you will find our sermon text for the evening, which is Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Some of you will notice right away that we have actually used this passage of Scripture as our call to worship for the past several weeks. And I want to highlight for you just how easy it is to see something again and again and again and yet to miss some of the great truths that are right before your eyes. And so I want to go back and revisit this passage as a part of our sermon series in the book of Revelation, but also as a way of highlighting the great truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we will see from this passage of Scripture. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. The word of God reads in Revelation 1, 4 through 7, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word, and all the church says, you may be seated. This evening we will focus on Jesus Christ, the Living One. As we've said many times before, the book of Revelation is not John's imagination. It's not John's description of Jesus. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ that Jesus gave to John and that John has written and conveyed to us. And so John is acting as a scribe on behalf of Jesus Christ, and he is telling us what he saw and what he heard. In this book, we get the Word of God telling us the meaning and significance of the Word of God. And throughout this book, we have Jesus bringing in all of these threads and echoes and hooks and tying them together in the book of Revelation to say, this is what all of the Bible is about. And what is it all about? It is all about Jesus. And specifically, it is about Jesus, the living one. 
This is a word from Jesus to the whole entire church. As we see here, it is to the seven churches that are in Asia. And when you see seven churches, it doesn't mean seven congregations, and it doesn't mean seven denominations of churches. It means the universal church. As we confess every week, it means the one holy Catholic church, the church that exists around the world, the global universal church of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' message to all of his people scattered throughout all of the world. And his message is grace to you and peace from Christ, from God, from the Holy Spirit, grace and peace from the triune God for all of his people. John tells us right away that this is a message that is coming from the one who was and who is and who will be. And what John is doing at the outset of this letter, this revelation, is he is setting up a contrast or a conflict between Christ and his church and Caesar and his empire. In the Greco-Roman world, it was not uncommon for people to refer to Zeus, their supreme God, as the one who was and is and will be. And yet John insists, by way of revelation from Jesus, John insists that these traits belong to the triune God alone. John is telling us that the triune God is Yahweh, the one who revealed himself to his servant Moses by simply saying, I am that I am. So go to the people and tell them that I am has sent me to you. He is the self-existent one. Now this expression is used to inspire confidence, both in God's sovereignty and in God's majesty over all time and life and history, no matter what comes to pass. Grace and peace to you is possible and real and can be actualized. Why? Because the God who gives you this grace and peace never ceases to exist. He is. He was. He will be. He is eternal. Now, as I've said, this book, this revelation, is the revelation of Jesus Christ to His people. These are the words of Jesus Christ coming to us by way of the Spirit through John the Apostle. And what I want you to note is that as Jesus speaks to us, these words should be taken to heart by you and by me and by all who hear these things. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller says, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not on whether you like his teachings, but on whether he has risen from the dead. If Jesus has risen from the dead as we believe then we must take to heart all that he has said to us, including these words found in the book of Revelation. There are basically three things that I want you to see tonight from this text, three questions that I would like to pose and then answer from the text. And you'll find them printed in your worship order. And then, as is usually the case, there is a fourth question that... I either failed to put in there or I only thought of later. You decide. But three questions 
Who is Jesus? What does Jesus do? Where is Jesus? And then the fourth and final question is, why does it even matter? Who is Jesus? Look at verses 4 and 5. We find in this passage that Jesus is referred to as the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and he is the ruler of the kings on earth. Three titles given to us at the outset describing who Jesus is. And these titles together describe for us the person and work of Jesus Christ. They describe for us His redemptive work, His crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. He is called the faithful witness, and this relates to His crucifixion, where He was martyred, where His blood was shed, His life was given up. He was faithful unto death on behalf of of God his Father, and on behalf of his people. He is the faithful witness who laid down his life for his people to purchase redemption for people from all over the world, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's also the firstborn from among the dead. This relates to his resurrection, obviously. But to say that he is the firstborn from among the dead does not mean that he was the first person to ever rise from the dead. It means that he is the first of many who will rise from the dead and enter into the new creation. He is the first of a kind. He is the first one who ever died as an innocent who did not deserve death. And he is the first one to rise from the dead as an innocent man as well. What happened in the death of Jesus? What happened in the resurrection of Jesus? What happened is that the old world of sin and death came to an end. And the new world of righteousness and grace and life was inaugurated. What happened on that day, what was invisible to the eyes of man, but what was in the mind of God and revealed through Christ by the Spirit, is that the future broke into the present. And Jesus Christ inaugurated the new creation. He began to set in place the new heavens and new earth. And He did it by means of His resurrection. All of those who rise from the dead by faith in Christ will follow this Lamb into the new creation. Herman Bovink says in his Reformed Dogmatics something very important for us to grasp at this point. The script, he says, The Scriptures teach that both heaven and earth, spirit and matter, have been created by God, that the body belongs to the essential being of humans and in its way exhibits the image of God, that death is a consequence of and a punishment for sin. For Scripture, then, everything depends on the physical resurrection of Christ. The that is integral to the how. If Christ did not arise physically, then death, then sin, then he who had the power of death has not been defeated. In that case, actually, not Christ, but Satan came out the victor. According to Scripture, therefore, the significance of the physical resurrection of Christ is inexhaustibly rich. 
When we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we should not simply be thinking of how an innocent man was killed and then brought back to life. End of story. We should be thinking of the significance of all that happened. That sin and death and the works of the devil and the devil himself were conquered and vanquished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By rising from the dead, Jesus shows that he has conquered sin and death and that he has, in fact, come out the victor over Satan. He has come to undo and destroy the works of the devil. And from the time of the resurrection forward, this is exactly what he's been doing. Now, we don't see all of this with our naked eyes. We don't perceive all that Christ is doing. But the scriptures make it clear to us that from the time Jesus was raised from the dead till now and going forward... The curse of sin and death is being reversed, is being rolled back. Things are being transformed and changed according to the grace and mercy and power of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we see here that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. What does this relate to? It relates to his ascension. It relates to his ascension. In the story of the Gospels, after Jesus was raised from the dead, He appeared to many people, not to everyone, but to many people. He made Himself known to His apostles and to His immediate community. They followed Him out on a hillside and He rose up into the sky on the clouds and angels came and said, just as you saw Him go away in the clouds, so you will see Him come again. But where did He go when He ascended? We'll see this in just a moment. But he went on the clouds to be in the presence of his Father with the Holy Spirit. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. Those kings who rose up against him, King Herod and Governor Pilate and Caesar, all conspiring against him to bring him down. But now he is the ruler of those kings on earth and the ruler of presidents and prime ministers and congresses. He is the ruler of all power and authority. As Psalm 2 told us, the rulers of the world, the nations, rise up against the anointed one. They seek to bring him down and God scoffs at them knowing that his son, the king and lord, will rise up. And he will rule the nations with an iron scepter and those who Turn to him and trust in him. He will shepherd and defend and protect with that iron scepter. But those who continue to rebel and resist him, he will smash to pieces with that iron scepter. And the warning given to the kings on earth is this. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Bow to him. Serve him. Surrender your crowns to him. He is the ruler of kings on earth. This relates to his ascension. So, who is Jesus? Jesus is the faithful witness who was crucified for the sins of all of his people. He is the firstborn from among the dead who was resurrected to inaugurate the new heavens and new earth. He is the ruler of kings of the earth who attempted to bring him down, but who will in fact be brought down by him as he makes the earth a footstool under his feet. Second question, what does Jesus do? 
We can hear these great truths about Jesus and feel that perhaps he is so transcendent and majestic that he is far away and disconnected from us. And how could he ever be concerned about us? How could he ever be thinking about you when there's so much on his mind and on his heart as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth? Here's what he does. Verses 5 and 6 tell us very clearly. First thing is, he loves us. He loves us. That might come as a surprise to you. Someone with so much majesty and sovereignty. And then the first thing we hear about him is, he loves us. He loves us present tense. He loves you present tense. He has you on his mind with all the other things on his heart and mind. He loves you. And how do you know that He loves you? It's not because you have a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart or that you get tingles on your spine or goosebumps on your arm. No, you know that He loves you because of what He did for you. That's the way you know that anyone loves you, by the way. It's not just by what they say with their mouths, although words do matter. But it's also by what they do with their life. And we know Jesus loves us because of what he did with his life. And it's revealed to us here what he did with his life is he set us free from our sins. He liberated us from our sins. How? By his blood. By his blood. He liberated us from our sins by laying down His life for us in our place, by taking upon Himself the curse that should have fallen to us, by bearing our sins to the cross in our stead. This is how we know He loves us. Not simply by the words that echo from eternity, although they are very important for us to hear, but also by the actions He took in space-time history. He entered into our story and He took the blow for us. He fell on the sword of God's justice for us. This is how we know He loves us. And if that's not enough, He did something else for us. He made us a kingdom and priests. He made us a royal priesthood. Now what does that mean? Well, this is an echo going back to the time when God gave the law to His people and He summoned them to the mountain. And they were at the foot of the mountain. He's on top of the mountain. The mountain uh, on the mountain there's a storm raging, thunder, lightning, smoke, trumpet blasts. And God is speaking to the people and He's saying that He is going to make them a kingdom and priests to God. For what purpose? God is forming a worshiping community around Himself. And He forms this worshiping community around Himself not because He is egocentric, although He does deserve all of the glory and praise that we can muster up, but He gathers a worshiping community around Himself for the life of the world. In the Old Testament, that community who was made kingdom and priest were supposed to be on mission with God. They were supposed to manifest to the world and show the world 
what God is like and who God is. And they were to display before the world the grace and truth of God. They were to call the world to God. They were to be a light among the nations. That's what it means to be a royal priesthood. It doesn't mean we hide away in a church building somewhere. It means that we gather as a worshiping community as a faithful witness of who God is. We are to be light to the nations. To put it in a way that we've said it many times, we are on a mission from God to bring people from every tribe and language and nation and people into Christ, into the new creation. We are salt and light. As kingdom and priest, we have the privilege of praying for the nations, of preaching the gospel to the nations, of praising God in the hearing of the nations. Why? Because we are echoing the revelation of Jesus Christ to the world. And we're saying, come, turn, trust in Christ Follow the Lamb into the new creation. So you see that what Jesus does for us is He transforms us by His love. Liberating us from our sins is one thing, but setting us free for what purpose? For the purpose of serving God. Not for the purpose of just doing anything and everything we want to do. We are now free not to roam about the country, but we are now free to go out as light to the nations. We're now free to worship and serve the triune God. Third question, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? The quick answer is he's in heaven. And as we know from the things we've already seen in the book of Revelation, He is in heaven before the throne of God at the center of ultimate reality. The vision here tells us that He will come on the clouds. Now we've seen Him on the clouds before ascending, but He will come on the clouds again descending at the second advent. What I want you to notice is what we are told to do at the beginning of that vision. It's a very important word there. Some of your translations say, Behold. A better translation is look. We are to look for Jesus. Look for His coming. Keep our eyes peeled. Look on the horizon. Look in the clouds. Always be looking for Jesus. We've said it many times so far in this series that the elders in this, in this book point people to Jesus. Here at the outset, we learn why. It's because Jesus is pointing us back to Jesus. The vision of Revelation is, look. Look at what? Look at Jesus. This vision of this image of Him coming on the clouds comes to us from... The book of Daniel, as we've mentioned many times before, Daniel saw one like a son of man coming up before the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and he was given all authority and dominion and power and glory. And it's that same sovereign and majestic Christ that we will one day see coming again on the clouds. We will see him 
coming again on the clouds. Now this whole vision assumes that Jesus is the living one, that he was dead, but now he is alive forever and ever. How could we assume such things? Well, we assume it because dead men simply don't rule over kings. Dead men don't love their people. Dead men don't come riding on the clouds. Jesus is depicted here as the living one, and just as he appeared to many after his resurrection and before his ascension, so he will appear once again to all people after his resurrection when he comes again. It is this promise of the second advent of Jesus Christ that is intended to fill us with hope, that's intended to sustain us in the midst of the brokenness of this world. In his book, Reverse Thunder, Eugene Peterson says, In the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are immersed in eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy word to talk about the end things or the last things. So in the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are immersed in eschatology, an awareness that the future is breaking in upon us. It involves the belief that the resurrection appearances of Christ are not complete. This belief makes life good for when we are expecting a resurrection appearance, we can accept our whole present and find joy not only in its joys, but also in its sorrows. We can find happiness, not only in its happiness, but also in its pain. We travel on through either happiness or pain. Why? Because in the promises of God, we see the possibilities for the transient, the dying, and the dead. And what are these possibilities? They are possibilities of new life possibility that Christ is going to put things to right. The possibility that Christ is going to fix what is broken. And the word possibility there does not mean that it might not happen or that it might happen. This is just a very humble way that Peterson uses to say it opens up for us these new realities. We can rest in the hope of the resurrection because Jesus will make things right. Final question. Why does all of this matter? Why does all of this matter? Well, you notice in the vision that we are told that when the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings on earth comes on the clouds there will be a very specific response from all the tribes, from all the tribes on earth. And what is that response? The response is that they will all wail. They will all wail. I want to unpack that word for you a little bit. You hear the word wail, you might think they're going to be howling like coyotes at the moon, right? Uh, they're going to be crying terribly and fiercely. In Greek, the word wail means this. It means to chop. And it was used in this sense, not to chop meat or not to chop wood, but it was actually used like this. They're going to chop their own hearts. 
They're going to beat their chests in grief. They're going to wail. And there will be two responses to this wailing. There will be some who wail. They will chop their hearts. They will beat their chests in a manifestation of worldly sorrow. They will be filled with regret because they heard the gospel. They knew about Christ. They rejected Him. They fought against Him. They tried to put Him down or marginalized Him. And they will be filled with regret in that moment. And they will beat their chest and they will beat themselves. They will chop their own hearts. Why? Because for them it will be too late. That worldly sorrow will bring them to regret that leads to death. But there will be a second response as well. There will be some who see Him coming on the clouds and they will beat their chest. They will chop their hearts. They too will be filled with sorrow. But it will be a godly sorrow. Not a godly sorrow that is filled with regret, but a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to real change. A godly sorrow that leads to life. We see an example of this at the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John has told us here in the vision of Revelation 1 that even those who pierced him will see him and will wail. At the end of the Gospel of John, we hear the same language. Jesus was on the cross, a soldier is given the charge to go and take a spear and ram it into his side, and he does so. And immediately, water and blood come flowing out of his side. And John tells us that the reason that took place was to fulfill what was spoken in the Scriptures. What was spoken in the Scriptures comes from Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. You notice that this flows out of the grace and mercy of God. And what did that soldier say at the end of that day as he gazed upon Jesus Christ, the one he had pierced, the one they had pierced, the one that everyone had gazed upon for hours and hours? Truly this man was the Son of God. Why do I say all this? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because again and again in the Scriptures, as Christ reveals Himself to us through the prophets and through the apostles, by His Spirit, through pastors, the message is always the same. Look to Jesus. Point people to Jesus. And ultimately, it is this encounter with Jesus that changes hearts and changes lives. 
The fact that Jesus will come again on the clouds indicates that he is, in fact, raised from the dead. And it is the living one, it is to the living one that we will give an account for our own lives. Final thing I want to leave you with. In his book, Simply Christian, Why Christianity Makes Sense, N.T. Wright says, Made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ all that belongs to the brokenness and the incompleteness of the present world. And that, quite simply, is what it means to be Christian. To follow Jesus Christ into the new world into God's new world, which He has thrown open before us in the resurrection of His Son. Think of the stone being rolled back from the tomb as God opening the door to a brand new world and calling you to follow the Lamb into that world. And you can only follow the Lamb who appears to have been slain because the Lamb who was slain is alive forever and ever. Let us pray together. This is from the Valley of Vision, which are a collection of Puritan prayers. Adorable Redeemer, you who was lifted up on a cross are ascended to highest heaven. You who as man of sorrows was crowned with thorns are now as Lord of life wreathed with glory. Once no more shame, once no shame more deep than yours, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel, now no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. What more could be done than you have done? Your death is our life, your resurrection our peace, your ascension our hope, your prayers our comfort. For your glory... And by your grace, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.